Welcome to the Sobre Mesa podcast. My name's Alan Maguire and I'm here with my co-host Owen Gilmartin. Welcome back, Owen. Hey, Alan. How are things? Not bad, not bad. How are you after your marathon writing? You, what, you've been writing on Catalonia, right? Yeah, well, no, well, yeah, no, very good. I just, it was just published today, but uh, yeah, quick, quick rewrite after uh, breaking news in the story. So it was, it's, it's always annoying when you finish something, you hand it in and then, uh, you know, a, so a new development sort of makes most, most of your writing redundant. So um, yeah. I've got, I've got it done, it's finished, so I'm, I'm happy. Well, uh, people want to check out Owen's article. It's on Navarra Media. It's, it's about Catalange, which is the latest uh, drama unfolding here in Spain, and hopefully we'll bring you something on it soon. And today also we have Carl Qualls with us. Welcome to Sobremesa, Carl. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Carl, can you just tell us a bit about who you are and why, you, why you're here with us today? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Carl Qualls. I teach at a liberal arts college in uh, central Pennsylvania, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, called Dickinson College. And I've been teaching Russian and Soviet history for 22 years here, um, as well as things like refugees and Holocaust. And now I'm starting to work on uh, Bosnian refugees, um, teaching my students how to capture their oral histories in our local community, because quite a few have settled here uh, after the genocide in Bosnia. So uh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys um, and talk about my latest book. Yeah, I mean, we, um, we've, I've just read the introduction, but it's, you know, really, really fascinating topic. Um, your topic is, is the, the sort of, I guess, the, the children, the Spanish children who were taken as refugees, in the Soviet Union during the Spanish Civil War. Can you talk about who, who were these children and where, where they came from? And then what did they, what was their initial experience when they arrived at the Soviet Union? Okay, so the 3,000 that went to the Soviet Union were predominantly leftists, uh, obviously. A very small group of just over 70 uh, fled fairly early in the war from Valencia to Yalta. There's a very uh, prominent uh, children's camp called Artek in Yalta. The vast majority, however, fled from the North Coast, um, beginning just a number of weeks after the um, bombing of Guernica. So that's a point where their parents, who were oftentimes, you know, miners and steelworkers and things like that, um, some anarchists, others, you know, a variety of, of leftist, um, leftist parties, supporting leftist parties, they realized that life was simply too dangerous. And they had to make it a very arduous choice of whether to send their uh, sons and daughters away for what they thought was going to be a few weeks, maybe a few months, um, or continue to hide out with them underground in shelters and possibly be killed. And so these 3,000 children, um, almost exclusively uh, from socialist and communist parties, including the Basque Communist Party, which I have to say absolutely confused the Soviet Communist Party because Basque communists <laughs> were also Catholic. Um, and the Soviets, the Soviets could not make sense of that paradox. Uh, but a couple of them were anarchists uh, or from anarchist families, and that was not a very safe designation. Um, going to the Soviet Union. Um, they were really young, um, as young as four, even though they weren't supposed to be that young. Um, seems like some forged documents and things like that to get them aboard the ships. And they take off on a really perilous journey because of course that North Coast was very heavily um, blockaded by the, the German Navy. And so they had to get out of the, the coastline uh, from Bilbao, Oviedo, and um, most of them first went to places like Bordeaux. They would offload there. And then some of them would go to Southampton, England. Others would go through the, the uh, North Sea into the Baltic and land in Leningrad, today's St. Petersburg. And if anybody's traveled in the North Sea, this is not a, an easy journey. Uh, it's a very rough seas. And these, these, were not, um, these were not passenger ships. They were, some of them were coal ships. And so the kids were down in the holes um, amongst the coal dust with rats and very little food and getting seasick from being uh, tossed and turned, scared of, of a submarine, uh, a U-boat um, taking them out. Um, one girl, I remember her story really brilliantly um, because it was so tragic. The, um, the film, the, um, uh, oh, she's now just lost it, um, Fu Manchu, something Fu Manchu, had just come out in cinemas. And it's, the villain is this kind of, um, this this Chinese character who's who's super scary and she had just seen it and the the sailors on the Sante were all Chinese and so she wouldn't uh -huh. she wouldn't leave her berth 
because as soon wow. as she did, she'd peek out and see Chinese people. And it's like, oh my God, you know, they're, they're the bad guys. Um, so there's all these different things that made this a really horrific journey. Um, and some of the kids didn't want to go. So, you know, they're separated from their parents, but some of them were also separated from, from their siblings. Although the vast majority of them went to Spain with a sibling, uh, a cousin, um, classmates, things like that. But very, very few had parents uh, go along with them unless they were a teacher or something like that. Sorry, who were the adults that went with them? I know you don't talk yeah. about them a lot, but who there was a, a few, right? Yeah, um, not as much as some other countries. Uh, so Britain had a, a slightly higher number, uh, almost 4,000 uh, children who went there instead of the 3,000 to the Soviet Union, but they had a higher percentage of adults who went with them. Um, but of course, there was no British support for the for the children at all, unlike in the Soviet Union. Um, so a lot of them were very young women, late teens, early 20s, that were supposed to be acting as caretakers or nannies, if you will, uh, for, the, for the younger children. Some of them were teachers, some trained teachers, trained pedagogues, uh, others who maybe were really good at mathematics and figured out that they could possibly teach in the classroom. Um, a few medical personnel, uh, not very many, uh, unlike Britain, no priests, <laughs> big surprise. Right, yeah. <laughs> went, went, went with them. Um, so there's, there were a lot fewer Spanish adults. In 39, there's more adults because as the, as the Civil War goes badly for the Republic, uh, a lot of the Republic supporters, sympathizers, and elite within the Republic then flee to the Soviet Union. Um, wow. But that's, they really don't, um, they don't have an impact on the founding of the boarding schools and basically their structure, even though some of them enter in 3940 into the boarding schools as, as teachers and whatnot, um, they aren't involved in the, in the creation of them. It's, with, it's the Spanish Communist Party, which is already based in Moscow. Uh, Dolores Ibaruri, for example, um, she is, is heavily engaged in speaking with the Soviet Ministry of Education to talk about how these Spanish children should be, um, should be raised and educated. I mean, her, her children went in, in 37, yeah. is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah and, and one, of, yeah, one of her sons died in the war. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He, I guess he's probably the most famous case. Yeah, he dies at definitely. Stalingrad. So yeah. I think he, 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 he managed to get back. He fought for a period in, in Spain in the Civil War and then, mm -hmm. and then was repatriated, joined the Red Army, I guess, and died at the Battle of Stalingrad. Right. Uh, yeah, he's by, he's by far. I mean, there, there, there are quite a few Spaniards who die fighting for the Soviet yeah. Union, but they're fighting for the Soviet Union. They're also fighting for the Republic uh, at the yeah. same time um, or to revive the Republic. Um, yeah. I think it would have been probably, not probably, clearly the most famous, well-known uh, of those 200 or so um, Spaniards who end up dying in the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, you talk, you talk about um, it was like reaching paradise after being in hell. So, I mean, I guess you, you also say, I think a lot of the children came from like very, you know, very impoverished backgrounds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what was that first, their first impression of the Soviet Union when they arrived, in, you know, 37 onwards? Yeah, it was remarkable. That's actually a quote from one of the, one of the uh, boys who arrived in, uh, in Leningrad, you know, coming from the shelling and the destruction and the poverty. So even if their town or village hadn't been shelled, they were starving, right? They were living on, on yeah. lentils, you know, day after day after day. And they got to the Soviet Union and they, they, uh, they get to the port and all they see is a, a crowd of people, uh, a brass band welcoming them, other children their age, right? And their, their pioneer, kind of their communist youth group uh, uniform with flowers and chocolates. And they come down the gangplate and they're being hugged by all these strangers. They just don't know what to make of it. And then particularly the ones that come to Leningrad, most of them are immediately put up in what we would consider to be like a four or five star hotel, one of the best hotels in all of, uh, of Leningrad. And so they're really confused. <laughs> they come from these very working class backgrounds in a period of war. And all of a sudden there is no bombs. There's no shells. There's no shoot shooting. There's so much food that one of them writes back home. So we have some letters between 37 and 39. And uh, one of the children write, writes back within a month or two of, of being there and said, I really wanted to send you some of this bread and butter and chocolate because I have too much to eat. I can't eat it all. And so there's that yeah. sense like they know what their family is going through back home. And they already understand that they're in a much better place. They may be separated from family, but they're being fed. 
they're uh, the ones who are sick because a lot of them were coming with tuberculosis and things like that. They go to a special, um, the Russians call it a sanatoria. So it's like a, uh, a health resort uh, down on the South coast where the air is drier and they can get um, extra, extra food, uh, medical care, all that kind of stuff. So they're being treated um, far better than the life that they could have expected. It, even if the Republic had not been in war, um, it would have been a much better life because even in 36, before they started coming to the Soviet Union, the papers are filled with what's going on on the front lines in Spain. And these children are already becoming, are being called the little heroes, right? Because they're, they're having to sacrifice with their you know, fathers on the front line, being shelled with their mothers and siblings. And so there's already a rhetorical device that the Soviets have created. And so that I think helps to explain a lot of that initial embrace as they're coming down the gangplank is like these little heroes, right? And they're coming up with the, the puño, right? The fist raised above their hand, right? They are the future of Spain, right? They are gonna defeat the Republic and defeat fascism, just like we're gonna de defeat fascism across Europe. And yeah. I suppose uh, like comparing that to the, the reception that you said, you, you made a mention to it earlier, that the Busk children got in Southampton, right? It's oh, I mean, yeah. completely, completely uh, at odds. Um, but also something else that you talk about in the introduction was your emphasis on education and, mm -hmm. and the future here. So, so why did you, why did you concentrate specifically on on education and and uh, what what did you find or what 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 interesting things did you find? Yeah. So I mean, this this book project was complete serendipity. Uh, I found this material in a Moscow archive in 1995 as I was beginning to work on a dissertation project, completely different, like on the rebuilding of Sevastopol in uh, Crimea uh, after the war. So I was trained as an urban historian, not a historian of childhood. Um, and every time I kept going back to Moscow as working on that dissertation and book, I kept looking in these files. And then the Soviet files, you have to sign every time you look at a document. And so I'd open up these files and nobody except the archivist was listed. It's like, all right, this is this is fertile ground. And my my oldest child at that point was studying Spanish. So I was, OK, this is a this is a way for he and I to kind of do something uh, together. But that that cache of about twenty five hundred boxes of material was um, of the Ministry of Education, what we would call the Ministry of Education. So most of the material in there dealt with the founding of these 22 boarding schools that were created for the Spanish children. Some of these boarding schools were within a Soviet school complex, but then the Spaniards would be set off in a, in a wing or on a different floor of the school. Uh, the children were put in uh, palaces or kind of noble houses out in the countryside where they could play in the forest and swim in the rivers and things like that. Um, but some were smack dab in the center of, of cities in an old palace of some noble that lost it in, in 1917. Like the, Viet, the Vietnamese um, embassy in Moscow now was school number seven for the Spanish children. So it's a grand uh, building with marble floors, a, a, a water feature fountain with fish in the courtyard, like just absolutely beautiful. And so when I was researching this book, I wanted to take a very different approach than my previous research and just let the documents lead me to, to the story. And the story was really one of education and how the Soviets were taking the pre-existing pre notions of Soviet education and blending them with these new Spanish pupils. And it's what I, what I call a, a, hybrid, uh, a hybrid identity of a Hispano-Soviet identity. So their, their thought processes and their behaviors were supposed to be Soviet but they're supposed to be taught and they were taught in Castilian Spanish and um, their heroes, uh, whether that be, um, you know, Lorca or Cervantes, right. They were supposed to still be embedded within a Spanish culture and Spanish traditions. So that, that hybridity just screamed to me from the pages of the archival records, but also some of the oral histories that first started be, being collected uh, by Spanish scholars in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Every, almost every um, former Nino that they interviewed said that this was one of the best, best points of my life. Um, they felt so well treated because um, unlike the UK where the government said, we will not spend uh, a, you know, a single pence on these children. It all has to be done through civic groups and churches and whatnot. The Soviets funded everything. 
education, medical care, food, vacations, even as they grew up, uh, they're subsidizing their incomes. And so this, the, the most interesting story for me was how do you take a non-Soviet citizen and create them into a Soviet citizen, but inflected in a different culture? Because already in the Soviet Union at this time, right, we have so many different nationalities within the Soviet Union. They had already shifted to what they called non-Russian education. So if you're Uzbek, you're supposed to be learning it in Uzbek and Russian as a second language. Your local bards and heroes were supposed to be part of your curriculum. But your way of thought, collectivizing, uh, uh, collective uh, labor, sacrificing for the greater good, respect for authority, obviously some Marxism, Leninism, um, those things were kind of a, a superstructure, if you will, uh -huh. but still allowing the Spanish culture and traditions to bleed through there as long as they weren't antithetical to what the Soviets were teaching. So, for example, yeah. Catholicism, you know, a very important part of, of Spanish culture for centuries, that obviously was beyond the pale, right? <laughs> that, right. that couldn't be taught. And they were actively teaching, you know, why this is superstition and why you should abandon your, your parents' uh, and, religion. And, and what was the reason for trying to uh, create this dual uh, Spanish Soviet identity. Yeah. So initially, it, it, in 37, 38, they weren't really thinking as much about this hybridity. They were just raising them as Spanish children. So they translated Soviet textbooks into Castilian Spanish because they simply didn't have uh, many Spanish textbooks. It's when the war really seemed to be lost in late 38, 39, that they began to realize these children can't go home. Right. These children from leftist families who've just been living in the center of communism, they will be persecuted if they go home by the nationalists. So they started thinking more long term. Um, these children might have to become long term residents or citizens of the Soviet Union. So they need to learn how to live as Soviets. But we want them to continue to particularly linguistically to understand Spanish, because the hope is they will at some point go back to Spain. They will liberate Spain, but then also all of Latin America, right? So it was part of this larger right. internationalism that it was at the center of Soviet communism that you as a Soviet citizen have a responsibility outside of the boundaries of the Soviet Union, not only to pay attention to what's going on in the world and oppression and this kind of stuff, but if you have the abilities to go and do something about this. And so these children are, um, still being brought up in Castilian, although some of them might have been speaking other languages, they're taught uh, Castilian in the Soviet Union, but then they're also given higher educations and things like engineering, agronomy, medicine, etc., so that they can go back to Spain even more uh, pressingly as they go to Cuba uh, and they help in the, the, the founding of, um, of the new Cuban, uh, Cuban state under Fidel Castro, because they have the, the the higher skills that are needed, but they can also communicate. But they're also more ideologically pure than Castro, who's who's only a quasi-communist uh, when he first yeah. comes to comes to power. These kids are are more orthodox, in, in at least in the Soviet sense, right? right. Stalinism is not exactly orthodox Marxism, uh, but in, in their view, they could spread communism um, both with their skills, their language, but also their ideological training. And. I mean, you talk about, I guess, this um, idyllic phase sort of comes to an abrupt ending with the, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of these kids, you were saying, yeah, they're, they're based in, in Leningrad, in St. Petersburg, or in, in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly these become frontline cities and they have to be evacuated to sort of, um, I don't know, republics past, past the Urals, et cetera. Yeah. What, what was that experience like for, for these, these Spanish kids? Yeah, it was absolutely horrific because the three major points of concentration, as you mentioned, Leningrad, Moscow, and Kiev, right? So within days, uh, yeah. days and weeks, all, all those cities are, are, are frontline cities. And so these children, like Soviet children, are put on trains and move deeper into the interior. And those journeys are arduous because, quite frankly, along the way, um, city officials don't want them, right? There are more mouths to feed, and it's already difficult feeding their their own population, if you will. So they get per pushed further and further um, beyond the Urals. Uh, the largest concentration um, end up just beyond the Urals in a place like Saratov. And this is when they begin to realize how difficult it is to live in the Soviet Union because they'd been so privileged for those first couple of years with all this abundance of food and whatnot. 
and now they're starving. Uh, there's this one horrific tale that's told by um, three different uh, Ninos in their memoirs or oral histories about um, coming across a dead camel in Sarata. There was a blind camel in the winter and it couldn't find food and it died. And that's what they ate on for, they didn't specify how many weeks, but that was their nutrition. Um, they all become farmers in one way or another, helping local farmers and then getting uh, some of that for themselves. So, you know, brutal cold, uh, much lower uh, rations to, to eat on. Uh, medicine is harder to come by. Schooling is much more difficult, right? They write about their inkwells freezing, uh, not having textbooks or paper to write on. Um, an absence of adult supervision in the house because a lot of the Soviets, but also some of the Spaniards went to the front line or into factories for the military industrial complex. And so we also see during that time, not only their conditions, daily life conditions declining, but also the, their behavior declining. Because this is a huge emphasis in Soviet schools is discipline, right? Not, you know, beating the children into discipline because a lot of the Spanish adults were actually taken to task because that's illegal in, in the Soviet Union at that time. Oh, wow. But the, just their behaviors, right? They start stealing. They stop going to school because there are fewer adults in their lives to do that. And this becomes the main talking point for Ibaruri and some of the others in the Spanish Communist Party in 44, as the front line begins to move back to the West. And she says, we, we have to get these kids back in Moscow. We need all these Spanish kids back in Moscow because then we can supervise them properly. She realized that that time away had undone a lot of the good training that they were getting of being disciplined children who fight for the cause now, these kids are still fighting for the cause, the Soviet cause, um, even though they're not on the front line. So there's a, um, a movement that begins in, in Soviet school called the Timur movement, in which children um, help out, help poor widows. They'll make socks and handkerchiefs for the front line troops. They gather medicinal herbs for themselves, but also uh, for troops. Uh, they tend the graves of the dead. So they're doing all these things that other Spanish kids are doing. It's the first time they've had to do any of that. And so they're, they're, they're really shocked and they get a sense of themselves now at this point as becoming more Soviet because they have very similar privations to other Soviet children. But even, even in these horrific conditions, they are still privileged compared to their Soviet counterparts, right? The rations are bad, but they're better than the Soviets. Mm -hmm. um, they, have, they have a higher percentage of adults per school than the Soviets do. The budget for these schools is much higher than um, equivalent boarding schools for Soviet children. Um, why why so, was that? That was one of going to be my next question. Why was why was there this privilege for the for the Spanish ch uh, uh, children in specific? Right, because I think you mentioned in yeah. the introduction the adults weren't like privileged, uh, but children were. Yeah, certainly not in the same way as the children. So um, some of this, so the the distinction between adults and children, the Soviet attitude towards children, it's, it's, it's very modern. It's, it seems like a lot of other countries in that children are the future. So you have to invest in them. You have to protect them. You have to, to raise them in a very conscious, uh, conscious manner. But in the Soviet Union, it's taken to a, another degree because they are going to be the builders of communism, right? We are in the midst of socialism and kind of getting ourselves to communism. They're the ones that are going to take us to the next level. And so there's much more of an investment in children um, already in the Soviet uh, Soviet condition, but these children, because they are heroes, right? They're hero children. So I like to juxtapose them to other non-Soviet children. Um, for example, the Polish children, right? As they're evacuated and, and come into the uh, Soviet Union or exiled, those children are treated brutally. Uh, the the beatings that they endure, um, sending them to to camps, it's absolutely horrific because Poles were not going to be the future, right? There are the centuries long uh, struggle between Russia and Poland was rearing its head. But Spain, because these were children of Republicans or at least Republican sympathizers, they had a higher goal right? and they could be trusted to uh, attain that goal and to fight against fascism where others like uh, Koreans or Poles or whatnot, um, they were seen as more dangerous. And I think it's also the proximity. If you're, if you're a child, and particularly if you're an adult from a country contiguous to the Soviet Union, you were more of a threat. If you were from further away, you were less of a threat because 
you couldn't be in constant contact. You couldn't smuggle things across the border as a spy or something like that. And so these children were protected basically by a, a geographical distance uh, from home, but also because their families had already been fighting the good fight for a number of years. And in, ter in terms of, I guess, placing this in the context of uh, the Soviet Union in the 1930s, you, you say here in the introduction, rather than represent the 1930s as a period of either socialist humanist experimentation or ever-increasing violence and terror, it seems more helpful to engage in understanding the coexistence of what appears to be binaries or dichotomies. Can you talk about, yeah, this coexistence of contradictions and the, how, how that played out for, I guess, the Spanish contingent in general? I think you say, I guess, for the adults, there were, was a more direct experience of the Great Terror, et cetera. Yeah. The children, obviously, were, were somewhat shielded from all that. Right. So um, I'm of a generation of scholars that some of us are trying to see the Soviet project as less unique than previous generations of scholars, that it shares a lot with, you know, parliamentary democracies and things like that. And part of that is states in the late 19th, beginning of the 20th century begin to operate on people and less on territory. So it's not about claiming territory, but it's claiming the bodies and the minds of the people. So the, the binary, yeah, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the violence, right? Especially in the late thirties, right? During the Great Terror, hundreds and thousands and millions of people disappearing into the gulags are being executed. This is part of a state project to, in essence, cleanse, um, cleanse the, the, the union of what they consider to be enemies. So you, you remove the enemies and those that you can see that can be converted, re-educated, or in this case for the children, for the Spanish children, educated in Soviet values, you invest in those. So one of the things that some of the uh, scholars of the Gulag um, have helped us to realize recently is that these are, these are not you know, Nazi concentration camps that you don't get out of. Um, dozens upon dozens of percentages, you know, 30, 40% come out of the Gulag every year, right? They're, they're re-education centers as well as penal labor uh, colonies, if you will. And so that there is, there is the act of punishment, but also it's to help to kind of rebuild you, if you will, mentally, your worldview, so you can be a contributor to society. So for the children, and particularly the Spanish children, they don't have to go through the, the penal part, right? They're, the educational milieu in the boarding schools are beginning to train them up as an ideal citizen before they can even be corrupted. And so part of the Soviet educational system and, and certainly in the Spanish boarding schools is um, embedding heroes within the curriculum. And so these could be heroes of labor. Um, these could be um, child heroes. There's this one uh, child in the 1930s called Pavlik Morozov who turns in both of his um, parents as enemies of the people, right? That is, he sees the state as a higher priority than his family. He's then killed by his uncle. <laughs> um, okay. uh, hero aviators, uh, Arctic explorers. So what they're trying to, to do for all Soviet children and for the Spanish children too, is give them models to emulate. If you want to be the ideal, here's the ideal. Here is what you shoot for. And this means rigorous study. It means training your mind. It means training your behaviors that, you know, whether that's time behavior, uh, hygiene, uh, all those kind of things. And of course, learning the Marxism, Leninism that they think is going to kind of create this, this uh, model ideal state in the future. And in that, in that sense, you mentioned, I guess, the contrast also with maybe the industrial boarding schools in, you know, in places like Canada, Australia, or in the, in the British Empire or, mm -hmm. or elsewhere. And the, I guess their, their more racial idea of, right. you know, of, you know, trying to start from a blank, blank slate, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, where, whereas, yeah, I mean, the, in, in some ways, the way you describe the Soviet education model in, in that sense, um, I mean, yeah, they're both, it's a modernizing project with, with some parallels maybe to the, the, the centrality of education in the Spanish Republican project. I mean, you right. know, uh, public education was one of the core elements of the reform program in Spain. Um, you know, you think of, of films like uh, La Langua de Mariposa, and all mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful. Film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how would you see that contrast maybe between 
um, you know, these two sort of modernizing um, mm-hmm. ideas of, of education. So I think what the Republic was doing um, looked very similar to what the Soviets were doing, not only in the, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, but the Republic was also devoted to cultural institutions, right? Libraries, cinemas, yeah. theaters, things like that. And I think this is, this is where I see the Soviet model um, deviating quite dramatically from say the British, American, French, Canadian models is they believe that children had to have an aesthetic education. So the, particularly the children in, in major cities, free of charge, they were going to see the Bolshoi in Moscow. They were going to see some of the best symphonies and ballets. They were going wow. to museums and all free of charge. Like This isn't happening in the United States in the 1930s. Right? This isn't happening in the UK. Um, these, there, there is a, a conductor from the Bolshoi that comes out to train one of the Spanish children. Independent one-on-one study, tuition. Like, that doesn't happen in these other places. If they see a child with talent or even desire, they try to surround that, that child with you know, art classes, uh, choral classes, dance, all these kind of things. It's what we would call in the United States kind of a liberal arts model. You have to know science. You have to know humanities. You have to know the arts because only in that way can you be a whole person. Um, so I think that distinguishes it quite differently from a lot of places. But also, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, um, the indigenous schools, like where I'm in now in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, is the site of the old Carlisle Industrial Indian School and um, this, in the early 20th century. The idea was to, to um, make the Indian white. That's, that's how they describe it, to, to take the Indian out of the Indian. And so it wasn't, um, there was no respect for the indigenous culture, re- retaining indigenous ways. The Spanish children is the complete opposite, right? We need to, and we insist that they continue to learn about literature, art, dance, language, geography, history of Spain. Now, of course, that is, um, some elements of that are, are left out <laughs> and some other elements are brought in. So in history classes, this is the one, you know, as a historian, obviously I paid most attention to, but so did the Soviets. Um, the examples from the Spanish past are when the peasants rise up against the oppressor, right? These are the lessons of the Spanish history, right? They don't talk about all the kingdoms and principalities, right? And the senores, well, they do talk about the senores, but not in a positive way. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's all Spanish history. It's always inflected through class, not surprisingly as a, as a Marxist, uh, as a Marxist history, but they insist that the children understand at least part of their history, the part that the Soviets see as, as important. And this goes for literature too. They, they try to say, okay, who in the past can we still use? Right? Cervantes isn't a socialist, but he's the great bard, right? He has to be taught. But then you put in people like Garcia Lorca, right? So, you know, here are some people maybe on the left that, that, that resonate with our socialist realist model of literature. But then here are some people in the past, you just have to know because this is, this is the modern Spanish language, right? This is where it, where it begins or where it begins to flourish. Um, so they're really careful about um, cultivating that within the schools, where in the indigenous schools, Canada, the US, Australia, they're just sites of brutality, uh, to be quite blunt about it. And you talk about their relationship that like, it was encouraged, right, to be Spanish uh, and to foster that part of their identity. But what was their actual physical relationship with Spain like? Because you said, you know, that they, they were living in a communist country. Franco historically hated communists more than anyone. Uh, what, but what was their, as they grew up, what was their sort of, were they coming backwards and forwards between Spain or, or where, how did that play out? Yeah, so their their adult lives is where they begin to the the what used to be the Spanish Ninos begin to diverge in their adult lives. So we have the first children learning leaving the Soviet Union in the last days of the war and going back to Spain. But here we're talking about a handful. It's really in the mid 1950s where Spain is becoming normalized by the United States, right, supporting its entry into the UN, asking for a military base, things like that. So all of a sudden, brutal dictator, yeah, who cares, right? <laughs> Get us what we need. And so the Soviet Union tries to do that as well. They're already trying to 
they're, they're creating back channel negotiations with the Franco regime in the late 40s. And so by you know, 54, 55, we see about half of these Ninos going back to Spain, you know, trying to reconnect with family and things like that. About half of that half immediately turn around and go to the Soviet Union, go back to the Soviet Union and don't come back to Spain until maybe after 1991 or after Franco dies in the mid 70s. Um, because Spain is backwards. It's parochial. It's poor. It's religious. It's patriarchal. It's misogynistic. Right? It's all these things that they've been told to hate in the Soviet Union. It's about equality. And so for the young women in particular, who now have training as doctors and engineers, like they could not have attained this in, 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 um, in, Franco's, uh, in Franco Spain, right? Where you're supposed to be you know, in the kitchen and taking care of your family, like higher education was not attainable for most women. And so they came back to a Spain that was not what they remember from a child, right? And that's not surprising, but one in which they really didn't have opportunities. Um, some of those who went back was also because they left family behind. Most of the Spaniards end up marrying um, Soviet citizens. For the women, so for the Spanish women, they cannot take their husbands to Spain. The Soviet Union won't let the, the Soviet men immigrate to Spain. For Spanish men, they can take their Soviet wives with them. Now, unfortunately, the data, or I haven't seen good data on who goes back and forth, but my guess is that women at a much higher rate return to the Soviet Union, both because they had to leave family behind, but also because of the opportunities. But they're also being repressed dramatically as soon as they, they come back to Spain. They're giving a special passport, a yellow passport that makes them stand out every time they're asked for documents. People see this and they kind of shy away. Many of them, their families won't have anything to do with them because it's dangerous to know them because they've been in the Soviet Union for maybe almost 20 years. So it's, it's a really difficult life. Um, one of my favorite examples is, you know, they're moving back. Some of them are moving back to Spain and think this is going to be a, uh, a return for good in uh, the 1950s. And so they start bringing some of their, their Soviet goods with them, things like televisions, there's no TV stations in Spain. Uh, automatic washing machines, completely unheard of uh, at that point. So it really, the, the materiality of that return is, is very visceral. To, like they can, they can see that the Soviet Union is a much more prosperous, but also a more egalitarian place. And by the time we get to 55, Stalin is, is, is dead. And, you know, those coming in 56, 57, it looks like a, a wave of reforms is beginning under Khrushchev and the Soviet, might, Soviet Union might become a much less repressive state. So um, Spain looked worse in pretty much every way that you could imagine, and particularly for the, for the young women who were returning. When you, talk, you talk about, I guess, uh, at least three possibilities op op open for the children. Oh, uh, well, you know, after they grow up. Um, to become fully Soviet, yeah, you know, when you've talked about their returning to Spain, or, uh, or yeah, to become a, a communist, communist international revolutionary, particularly in uh, in Cuba with with Castro. Um, can, can you talk about those three, I guess, three potential outcomes for for the kids? Um, yeah, I mean, what, particularly, I guess, the first one: what happens to the, the ones who who decide to, to make their lives, and then maybe a bit more about. The ones who went to fight for for Castro. Yeah. So unfortunately, we don't know um, enough about Castro. I was trying to get to to Cuba to do some of that work, uh, but at the time I was ready to do that, um, the U.S. had put a basically an embargo on scholars going to Cuba again. It's one of the many things that having an American passport is not good for. Um, so I really don't have much more to say about that. One of my colleagues, Glennis Young at the University of Washington has been working on the adult lives of these children. And so hopefully we'll be seeing more of her work in the near future. Um, but so those who stayed in the Soviet Union and kind of made that their life. When they leave the boarding schools, so um, one's education is usually done at age 14 after seven years of education in the Soviet Union. If you have particular um, academic skills, then you can go three more years to prepare you for higher education. The vast majority of these kids, either by their own desire or because a lack of aptitude, um, leave at 14 uh, during the war and go into factory labor. 
most of that factory labor is working in parachute factories and aviation plants and things like that. Even after they leave the boarding schools, they still have support of the Soviet state and the Spanish Communist Party. So there is supposed to be a plenipotentiary from the Spanish Communist Party that goes around to all these workers' dormitories periodically and checking on their conditions. Um, they all have stipends, which infuriates some of their Soviet colleagues. But the logic is that most uh, Soviets have multi-generational household income. So it's two, two or three generations of household income. And the Spanish don't have that. And so they need that little bit of extra stipend so they continue to buy, can, can afford their food and whatever else they, they might need. So some tension begins to arise during the war, both with the, the kids who are, who are privileged in the schools, but also begin to uh, appear in larger numbers in the factory settings. Um, but they go on to careers like every other Soviet citizen. Um, some of them do their nine to five in the factory and that, that's it. Some of them um, go into higher education. Uh, a number of them become uh, doctors um, in all kinds of things from uh, you know, medical doctors as well as getting doctorates in linguistics and history and whatnot. Um, chemistry, like um, Bernardo Rio has a, a wonderful story. Um, Florentina Diaz, uh, Jose Garcia, all of them got doctorates, right? They showed already at, at 14 to 17 years old that these were really, really bright kids. And it's usually, my, my guess is, because we don't have longitudinal data, is that the children that go on to higher education were probably the ones who arrived younger in 37 and 38, because they probably had then a, a better mastery of, of the Russian language, but they also then had more of the Soviet mindset. Those who are arriving at 13, 14 years old, they don't have as much formal education in the language or in the, the ideology. And so they go into factory work and kind of probably stay in that milieu for much longer. But some of them become award-winning Soviet citizens. Um, they win Soviet prizes and medals, including two uh, got the Order of Lenin, which is one of the very highest that you can get, uh, ballerinas, sculptors, choreographers. Um, the captain of the Torpedo uh, Football Club was one of these ninos, uh, Agustin Gomez. Um, so he's probably the most famous of all, of all these because football is a crazy sport in the Soviet Union as it is in Spain, but also uh, uh, Jesus Farda and um, Roberto Sagasti um, also, uh, I think they both captained their teams. If not, they were the, the dominant players. So the if you take this, this Spanish cohort, they end up doing everything that a Soviet cohort would do simply in smaller numbers. Uh, my guess, and it is just a guess, is that we would have a higher percentage of the Spanish children going into higher education than Soviet children. Again, because of that, that privilege and trying to prepare them to go to Cuba or other places in Latin America or back to Spain. So yeah, that's where their lives uh, really diverge is that in that kind of 14, 15, 16 area uh, and during the war. I don't know if that answered your question, Owen. Yeah, I mean, I, I was remembering me, me and Alan went to a, a book launch before Christmas. It was a biography on uh, La Passionaria. Um, and her, her granddaughter was, was there at the, at the book, book launch talking. Um, and I presume, you know, she would, have, she would have been born in the Soviet Union. I think, I think she still, you know, still has a house in Moscow. I'm not sure what, what her status is now with the war. But um, I mean, what was it like for these type of people maybe because, you know, obviously you had these these ninos in, in the 30s, but then you have all the, you know, right. their families and then you have, you know, the, I guess, the refugees coming in the, at the end of the war. But when they return, I guess, in 75 um, or after, you know, after 75, when when the, um, you know, Franco dies, you have the transition, the Communist Party is legalized, etc. What was what was their experience like when they returned to Spain in the 70s and I guess 80s? Yeah, well, the, you know, it kind of depends on, again, kind of their, their age and experience. But one of the things I think the Soviets, uh, well, actually, is La Passionaria who kind of started this, is at the end of the war, when I said, you know, she's trying to bring them all back to Moscow, they also create a club for them um, called the Chkalov Club, named after a very famous um, aviation pioneer. Um, today, it's still the Centro Espanol in Moscow. And so they're beginning to realize, oh, we have multiple generations of Spaniards. So they need a place to congregate 
to speak, to teach their children or grandchildren how to speak Spanish. Um, you know, how do you dance flamenco, right? What are your, the food ways of your country? So all these kind of things. So trying to help maintain now for generations that, that culture. So as they're going back to, to Spain in the, in the late 70s, and then the other big wave, you know, after, um, after Franco's death is 1991. So they have very different interests, right? So the ones who are returning, you know, 76, 77, just after, after Franco's death, um, they just want to go home. Um, they didn't want to suffer the repression of the Franco regime. So they waited that extra, what, 20 years after the first group really goes back in large numbers. 1991 is the complete opposite. Now the Soviet Union is a mess. Um, economically, is very depressed in the 1990s. So Spain looked like a better option. Um, and they were also much older. And so, you know, I think they were, they were driven by the economic tribulations in the Soviet Union, but also just that romantic notion of the homeland. Right? One of the things I think the Soviets did really well is to foster, and, and this comes from the, from the oral histories, a lot of people talk about Dos Patres, right? That I have two homelands, right? I have the Spanish homeland, but also have the Soviet homeland. And I think by the, the cultivation of that, that notion of Spain is your home too. Um, it, it drew people back to Spain, different times and different reasons. Um, and so once the persecution was done, I think more people felt comfortable moving back to Spain, but not in the big numbers that we saw in the mid fifties, right? They, they trickle back by the, the hundreds rather than the thousands in both kind of 76, 77, 78, and then in the, uh, in the early 90s. And by the time they get to the early 90s, right, they're starting to become uh, pensioners. And eventually Spain, I can't remember the year, but eventually Spain uh, recognizes them as, uh, as pensioners um, and gives them a, a Spanish pension. And that caused even more than to, to come back to Spain. There are several, I mean, I, I don't know now because you know, they're, they're quite old and there's probably not a whole lot of them uh, alive still. But throughout the 90s and early 2000s, there were, um, what would you call them, um, civic organizations of these former Ninos, the Guerra. Um, oh, well. And they would, they would get together in Madrid and Barcelona and, and probably in uh, Oviedo and, and other places. Uh, and they would meet up and hang out. And apparently the Spanish scholars, so I was going to do my own oral histories, um, but I don't like doing oral history through translation. And my spoken mm -hmm. Spanish is let's say far from native. <laughs> um, so fortunately, a lot of Spanish scholars began to, began to collect these oral histories in the early 2000s. Um, and they did it by tapping into these, these collective networks of former Ninos that had come back and congregated in, in certain cities. And it made that, that process a, a, heck of a, lot, uh, a heck of a lot easier. Um, and Enrique Zafra is the first one to do this. I think in like 85, 86, he was actually one of the Spanish adults who went to teach in the boarding schools. And then he came back and he started reconnecting with some of his former pupils, but also other Spanish, Spanish kids that he didn't know and said, okay, we have a story to tell here. And uh, so he collected these, uh, these interviews um, and then published them in a book um, in the mid to late eighties. But then we had a gap of almost a decade before scholars started doing that again. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I guess, the, I guess when these kids were leaving first, no, I mean, the first initial idea was they were only, only going to be there maybe for a few weeks, a few mm -hmm. months, a year or two at most. Uh, and that's, some, again, some of them were based in uh, Kiev. No? Um, I mean, obviously, there's a certain parallel, which you don't want to push too much, but like, you know, you have, obviously, you have the, the opposite situation in this moment with the war, war in Ukraine. Um, and a huge ex exodus of, of, of refugees to to Western Europe. I mean, what? Um, I mean, what can we, what can we learn from from the the, the Spanish experience in the thirties for that is relevant, I guess, to that this moment now? Yeah, I, I think the most important one is that that children need to have a special place within refugee communities, um, and their culture has to be protected. And some countries seem to be doing a pretty good job about that, of trying to find Ukrainian speakers um, to, to work with these children. But eventually they go back home. And you know we don't know how long this group of refugees is gonna be outside of Ukraine. But if you're three or four or five years old and it's only a two year period that you're out of your country, that's, most of, that's a, a large chunk of your life. And so 
I think all these countries need to learn that um, while students to some degree have to be integrated into their, their new culture, their prior culture, their home culture, their native culture has to be cultivated because otherwise they're going to stick out um, and they're not going to be able to see themselves as Ukrainian again. And I think in this moment, as it was with the Spanish, it's really important to, for them to continue to have that national identity because there's a whole lot of post-war rebuilding that's going to have to go on. There has to be a national pride that's being fostered there. And I think the Soviets did that really well. They did that much better than um, any of the other countries that took in the Spanish children. I mean, France had by far the most because they could just go over the, over the border. Um, if the children ended up in a bass camp, bass camp, sorry, <laughs> with a strange accent there, um, then they were fine. If they ended up in a Catholic camp, um, it was horror, absolute horror. And the Red Cross was kind of somewhere in between. So, yeah, I think that's the, the biggest one is understand that children are vulnerable and you have to surround them with adults who have a, both the training, but also the love of children. Um, Cause that's what a lot of these kids talk about is, you know, this was La Familia, right? The, the boarding school was their adopted family. Their teachers were their adopted parents. Their, uh, their classmates were their children. There's several of them talk about, Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't marry somebody from the, the same home because it'd be like an incestuous marriage, right? That's how close they felt to some of their classmates. Um, that's, that's a good thing, right? Is, is making them feel like they have a family and a, and a support network because these kids are going to be traumatized. They may not know it now, but it may come up weeks or months or years from now. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks. Brilliant. Uh, no thought to end on. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks yeah. very much well, for your time, Carl. Thanks so much, Owen. And yeah. Al. I, I really appreciate it. That was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was great. It was really interesting. I hope you enjoyed that interview and you can find many more interviews with other historians, sociologists and academics that specialise in Spain in our back catalogue of around 50 episodes. Don't forget to like and share this um, episode if you can. And if you're on Apple, leave us a comment and also subscribe to us on your favourite platform for podcasts to get updates of our up-and-coming shows we have quite a few planned please do share this uh, podcast with people that enjoy Spain and want to see the country through a different light which isn't the typical sort of sun-soaked tourist sangria based um, media that you find in a lot of the mainstream platforms I hope you enjoyed the interview see you next time